Acts chapter 8. Now I want you to find Acts chapter 8 verses 1 and 2. And then I'm going to preach to you chapter 6 and chapter 7. How do you like that? If you got your word with you, let's, let's stand. We're going to read God's word real quick, okay? I'm going to read verse 1 and you can help me on verse 2. Would that be all right? Here's what it says, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. You ready to read this for me now? And devout men... As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Be seated. I'm going to preach kind of an unusual sermon this morning because I want to talk about an obituary to die for in 2019. An obituary to die for in 2019. An epitaph's a phrase or a form of words that's written in memory of a person who has died, especially as an inscription on their tombstone. I read these, for example. Here lies the body of Samuel Crane. He ran a race with a passenger train. He got to the crossing and almost across. Sam and his car was a total loss. Sam's spirit now tolls his knell that Sam is on his way to, well, if he had only taken time to stop and look and listen, He'd be living now instead of missing. Imagine that. That's a true deal. Here's Johnny, quite the guy. Very sad he had to die. All was well, could not be better, till he wrote my gal a letter. <laughs> death is a death that's justly due that I have paid and so must you. Pretty somber, huh? Epitaph for Lieutenant Dan Nathan Davis, who died in 1781 in Connecticut. It writes, grim death took me without a warning. I was well one day, and I thought of this one because my dad's name was Clyde. He said, here lies Clyde. His life was full until he tried to milk a bull. It's great. Isn't that great? <laughs> Here lies Caleb Ham by trade a bum. And when he died, the devil cried, Come, Caleb, come. An obituary is a notice of death, especially in the newspaper, typically including a very brief biography of a deceased person. 
These are actual pictures of obituaries that I'm going to show. This is Josie Anello. And if you read the yellow part, it says she is survived by her son, AJ, who loved and cared for her, daughter, Nifa, who betrayed her trust, and son, Peter, that broke her heart. Whoa. That'd be a little tense, wouldn't it? The next one's Rick Bacon. It says up there, it says he's from Lumberton. Richard Norton Bacon, Rick of Lumberton, has left the building. His friends will tell you he's in a better place. The rest will say they can smell the bacon burning. <laughs> he is stress-free and at peace. Well, the last one I'll read to you this morning is a guy named Richard Buckman. It says... In lieu of flowers, please do not vote for Hillary. <laughs> I didn't write those. I just was reading you what it said. Is that incredible or what? Even in death, the guy makes his point. Well, our text this morning is Acts chapter 6 through 8. I just read Acts chapter... <laughs> 8 verse 2, and this is talking about a guy named Stephen. Did you catch those words? It says, and a devout man, devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. If you have a newer translation this morning, it might read something like this. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Think about that. Wouldn't you be agreeable to mo this morning that it would be great to have something said like that about you if you were to die in 2019? Wouldn't it be wonderful if godly people would mourn deeply when you leave this earth? What a compliment. I've decided to preach this sermon today because as we begin a new year, new years are days that you think about resolutions. You make some vows, you set some goals, and it's a good time to think about how the kind of life you ought to live during this upcoming year. And so today we're going to look at this passage. It also happens that Stephen is a deacon. He's one of the seven original deacons, and you heard me a few moments ago read off that list of deacons, and since deacon nominations are coming in, we'll have them again next week, and then we'll vote. I thought it'd be wonderful if we'd looked at maybe what a deacon was in the New Testament. And so this morning, I want to kind of review his life a little bit, and I want us to to learn why Stephen was so admired and so loved that devout men would bury him and mourn deeply over him. The word, if you read this passage this morning, and I want you to turn back to chapter 6, verse 3, and we'll, I'm going to give you four things this morning about Stephen that made him this kind of a man. 
The Bible says, if you'll look in chapter 6 and verse number 3, the scripture talks about, in this passage, it says that these deacons were men that were looked out among seven men of honest report, notice, full of the Holy Ghost. And literally, you could read it this way, full of the Holy Ghost, full of an honest report, full of grace, full of wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. In the context of our verse there, the word full is the idea of being complete or fully covered over. Uh, when your Bible talks about these guys, it says that they had characteristics, they had qualities, that when you looked at them, they were completely full of this particular quality. The scripture says that, first of all, that Stephen was full, notice this, of the Holy Ghost. So uh, if you want to take notes on your bulletin this morning, you'll notice that it says that Stephen was a spirit-filled man. Now let me help you. That's not the only place it says that. If you look a little further down and look down to verse number 8, we're in chapter 6. It says that Stephen was full of faith. And what? Power. That's the power of the Holy Ghost. And the Bible says he does great wonders and miracles among the people. The Bible goes on and the scripture tells us if you look a little further, it says in chapter number 10 or chapter 6 and verse 10, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit. Now, I don't know if that's the Holy Spirit there. It could be that that's a, the quality of, of his lifestyle. It talks about the way when he spoke, he had a personal aura about him. It says that they were amazed. They weren't able to resist the wisdom and the spirit, notice, by which he spake. Now go to chapter 7. I'm just trying to show you this again and again in the passage. And drop down, if you would, to about verse number 55. Scripture says in Acts 7 and 55, but he being full of the Holy Ghost. Notice that. He was full of the Holy Ghost. He looked up steadfastly into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, Stephen was a very unusual guy. He was chosen to be a deacon and one of the qualities that they looked for in deacons in the early church was they had to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, why was that so important in this particular story? Well, if you remember the context, Acts chapter 6, the church has mushroomed and grown beyond belief. It's growing exponentially. And the Bible says that there developed a problem in the church. By the way, what Satan can't destroy on the outside, Satan will do his best to destroy on the inside. And so the Bible says that Satan comes along and he causes a contention in the church and it's between the, the grandmothers of the church. I was a little boy when my dad taught me this principle. He said, when mama ain't happy, there ain't nobody happy. And that's the truth. And the scripture says there was, there was kind of like a feeding program. They had silver saints that they were taking care of and they said that there was prejudice in the church. The, the Hebrew grandmas, the ones that spoke Hebrew, the ones that were natural born there in that land, 
they had a problem with the fact that the Greek grandmas uh, weren't seemingly getting a fair shake. The, the Hebrew grandmas got the best food. The Greek grandmas hardly got any food. And so there was a murmuring. There was a problem. There was contention in the church. And so the Bible says that in order to take care of this, they decided to choose some deacons. The word deacon, by the way, means servant. And so they chose these seven servants to take care of that problem. By the way, I tell the deacons this all the time. Fellas, as a deacon, you carry a can of gas and you carry a can of water. Your job when you see a fire is to throw the water on it. Not gas. That's the deacon's job. Their job is to serve in the church and to take care of problems in the church. Because the Bible says it wasn't worthy of those apostles to leave their Bible reading and their prayer time and to have to mess with those kinds of things in the church. So that was the deacon's area. That's what the deacons did. They were appointed, the Bible says, over that business. Well, the Bible says look for seven guys. First quality, make sure they're spirit-filled. Now, the good question might be, what does that mean? What does it mean to be spirit-filled? Well, let's take just a moment to kind of review that. I'm sure that some of you know, but basically a, a spirit-filled person is somebody who literally makes Jesus Christ of his or her life, their thoughts, their actions, their reactions, the Lord of their life. When we talk about a spirit-filled person, it's somebody who allows the Spirit of God to lead them, to fill them, to control them, and literally they let the Lord control the way they act and talk and react. When I think of this principle for a few moments, I can't help but think of what Adrian Rogers' definition of the Holy Spirit is, and he basically said it's Christ living his life in a Christian. That's what it is. To be filled with the Spirit is allowing Jesus Christ to live his life in me. You see, in order to be Spirit-filled, you've got to allow Christ to truly live in and through you. And this can only happen as Christians as we receive the Holy Spirit the moment that we're saved and then allow him to control us. You'll remember that passage in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8 where the Bible says, don't be drunk with wine where is an excess or dissipation. He said, but be ye filled with the Spirit. You say, Pastor, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means to be controlled by the Spirit. Don't let alcohol control you, he says. Let God's Spirit control you. And by the way, we have the Holy Spirit living within us. The moment that you're saved, the moment that you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says God's Spirit lives within you. What? Know ye not? Your body is the temple. It's the abode. It's the place of habitation for the Holy Spirit. You'll remember it was Jesus that told his disciples when he was leaving. He, he comforted them and he said this. He said, fellas, don't worry. I'll not leave you as an orphan. I won't leave you alone. I'm going to send another helper. 
another of the same kind, just like me. And he'll even be more help to you because he'll live within you, listen to this, forever. He doesn't come, he doesn't go. He doesn't get mad and pout and leave. The Bible says the Holy Spirit lives within us. John chapter 14 and verse number 16 says, and I pray the Father that he'll give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ, that spirit of Christ, that Holy Spirit lives with inside of you every place you go. Amen. So a spirit-filled person is somebody that welcomes God's spiritual leadership from within. He allows that leadership to extend into all areas of his life. Literally, he's full of the spirit of God. He allows God to rule. He allows God to live in every moment, at every point of his life. And the Bible says that then your spirit filled. One of the great saints, the third century, referring to our Lord, made these words. He said, he came, he became what we are so that he could make us what he is. You listening? He came, he became who we are so that he can make us who he is. The secret of the Christian life, ladies and gentlemen, isn't feel trying harder. The secret of the Christian life is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen. You see, folks, the Bible says that Stephen was a Christian. He was a little Christ. He had the spirit of Jesus permeating his soul, his spirit. And when people saw him, they knew he was filled with the spirit. How about you? This morning, is that your testimony? You say, Pastor, why is that so important? Because when you look at Stephen, Stephen and Jesus, there are so many parallels between the two. For example, when you think about Jesus and Stephen, the Bible says that Jesus was full of grace. The Bible says that Stephen was full of grace. The Bible says that Jesus performed miracles. The Bible says that Stephen performed miracles. The Bible says that Jesus boldly confronted the religious establishments of his day. When you read Acts 6 and Acts 7, that's exactly what Stephen does with the Sanhedrin. When you read the scriptures, the Bible says that Jesus was convicted by lying witnesses. And the Bible says Stephen will be also. The Bible says that Jesus was executed through the innocence, though he was innocent of any crime. And by the way, so was Stephen. The Bible says that both were accused of blasphemy. The Bible says that both died outside the city and were buried by their sympathizers. The Bible says that, that Stephen, when he prayed, and Jesus, when he prayed, right before they died, they both said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How do you do things like that, folks? It's easy when Christ lives in you. Amen. You have to be spirit-filled. Let me ask you a question. Can somebody see Christ in you? 
Let me ask you a question this morning. If we really were getting biblical deacons, if we were really looking for deacons that were according to the God's word, could we say that you're qualified because you are a spirit-filled Christian? As many of you know, Lee Strobel was once an avowed atheist. Through the witness of his wife, he became a Christian and he became introduced to the gospel. It was a long, tedious kind of a journey. He got so mad at his wife on occasions that he just thought about divorcing her because she had turned into a religious fanatic. And he writes in these words, he says, my, my daughter Allison was five years old when I became a follower of Christ. And all she'd known in those five years was a dad that was profane and angry. I was ashamed to think of the times Allison hid in her room to get away from me. Five months after I gave my life to Jesus Christ, that little girl went to my wife and said, Mommy, I want God to do for me what he's done for my daddy. And at age five, she was saved. She'd never studied the evidence that I studied. She never looked at the biblical accounts like I did. All she knew that her daddy used to be this way, hard to live with. But more and more, she saw her daddy becoming different because that's what God does to people when they sign up. He fills them with their spirit. You see what I'm talking about this morning, folks? Strobel invited Jesus into his heart, into his life. He gave the Lord the reins of his life. He said, God, I don't want to control myself. I want you to control me. I want you to change me. I want you to make me into a new creation. And by the way, when you're spirit-filled, that's what God does. You say, Pastor, how would you like to be remembered if you were to die in 2019, spirit-filled. But let me add that Stephen took personally the Great Commission. The Bible says, if you'll look carefully at the passage, Acts chapter 6 and about verse 7, and I've got to kind of run through this quickly. It says, the word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And there was a great company of priests that were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, a deacon, Stephen, full of faith and power and great wonders and miracles among the people, and there arose certain of the synagogues. By the way, the Mishnah says that in Jerusalem there were probably 480 synagogues at this time. A synagogue was like a a meeting place. A synagogue was a place where children came to learn Hebrew. It was also a place they had church services or temple services. And the Bible says that Stephen being a, a, a Jew, the Bible says that he went to a synagogue which is called the synagogue of the Libertines. You may have a Bible that says the freemen and the Cyrenians, and the Alexandrians, and the Cilicians, and of Asia. By the way, I think personally there's probably three different groups of people. I think the first group 
according to this passage, and I'll kind of lump it together. The freemen, the freemen were Jews that had been carried off to Babylonian captivity, and they had lived there for years, and now they had finally been freed. There was another group that had been carried off by a guy named Pompey, about 62 B.C., and they were freed and brought back to Jerusalem. These were men that were now free. They went to a synagogue of free men. And the scripture says, and there was a group of people called Cyrenians in Alexandria. Alexandria is in Egypt. The Cyrenians come from North Africa. Undoubtedly, these were black Jews. And here Stephen is going to this synagogue of the freemen. He's going to the synagogue of the Alexandrians and the Cyrenians. Remember Simon of Cyrene that carried Jesus' cross? He was a black man. The scripture goes on. And there were those of Cilicia and of Asia. Paul was from Cilicia. It's a region. It's Asia Minor, okay? And so you got three different kinds of synagogue. What do they have in, in common? Well, here's what they had in common. They spoke Greek. Stephen is a Greek name. It means Stephanos, crown. That's the idea. Stephen was chosen. Remember, they had Greek grandmas and you had uh, Hebrew grandmas and they're arguing. If you go carefully and look at the names of these deacons, guess what? The early church was so smart they had a Greek problem, so they chose seven guys that were Greeks. If you're griping about your grandma not getting enough to eat, we're going to make sure you can take care of it. It's your mama. You're in charge. So you got these seven Greek guys. And by the way, if you look carefully at this passage, he's going to these Greek synagogues. Now, help, help me for a second. You got two kinds of Jews. You got the Jews from Palestine. Those are the ones that speak Hebrew. And you got the Jews that were called Hellenistic Jews. Am I making this too, too much for you? I hope not. You got two different kinds. You got those that speak Aramaic and those that speak Hebrew. And you got those that speak Greek. Stephen's a Greek speaker. And so he's going to these synagogues and he's telling them about Jesus. He's telling them about the, the Christ that they had nailed to the cross. And the Bible says, look at the passage. The Bible says, if you look carefully, they disputed with, they argued they challenged him. He's telling them the story of Christ, and they're, they're not buying into all of it. And the scripture goes on. It says in verse number 10, but they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. And they suborned men. They hired false witnesses. That's what it's saying. And the Bible says, when they heard him, that he spoke blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now, here's what my point is. Here you've got a Greek-speaking deacon, and so he take seriously the, the commission, the commission that says go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so he goes into the area that he knows best. I wouldn't be surprised that Stephen probably went to those synagogues before he became a follower of Christ. I wouldn't be surprised that his mama, his, his, his daddy, some of his cousins, some of his aunts and uncles went to that particular type of synagogue and he's going there and he's sharing Christ. He's preaching the gospel. He becomes an indigenous missionary. You say, Pastor, what does that mean? The commission goes like this. Take the gospel into Jerusalem. Listen to me. 
Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. And so Stephen takes that literally. And Stephen says, I need to start sharing Christ with those folks that I know. He becomes a missionary. You know, if there's anything that we need to get better at as a church, is sharing the gospel. Folks, some of you think that the whole job of the pastor is to do all your evangelism for you. You think that the staff's hired because they're supposed to go share Christ. But listen to me, folks. You have an influence. You have a sphere of people that you need to talk to, that you have an impact upon. And Stephen goes back home. Stephen goes to his synagogue. Stephen goes to the people that he knows. And he begins to share with them Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you shared, you shared Jesus Christ with someone you know? When's the last time you took the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you said to somebody, hey, the bottom line is you need to be saved. You need to trust Christ as your Savior. You say, well, pastor, I don't want to do that. I want you to do that. Let me help you with something, folks. You've got influence over, over some people I'll never have influence over. You run in circles I'll never run in. And if you don't share, and if you don't influence, and if you don't make an impact, who will? Who will? You ever tried to, sh to, to sell a used car? By the way, I'd rather be a horse whipped. <laughs> I got a commercial up here. I want you to look at this. This is really cool.
By the way, that guy right there had a bunch of friends that were in that kind of business where they could do all those visual effects, and he made that commercial, put it on the internet to sell his car. <laughs> and guess who bought his car? His neighbor. You know, most of us as Christians, we think, you know, if we could just come up with some program, if we could just come up with some big citywide revival or citywide personality or, or somebody that was really famous, if we could get them to come in and tell people about Jesus, we could change our community. Folks, listen to me. It works with your neighbor. I'll try it again since I got three amens and a grunt. It works with your neighbor. Amen. The problem that we have, the situation that we have in America is we think that we have to hire a hired gun to come in and, and do our dirty work. Stephen says, you know, evangelism starts at home. I might as well go tell my friends. I might as well go back to the synagogue where I went when I was a Jew. I might as well share with those people I know best. And so he goes back to those synagogues in town that was close, and he begins to talk to them about Christ. Amen. You know, when I think of Stephen, one of the reasons why Stephen was so amazing was he was a missionary in his Jerusalem. Let me ask you a question. Who's the missionary in your Jerusalem? If we're going to take to our, 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 our missions effectively, we need to look at the world the way Jesus looked at the world. The Bible says that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. And folks, listen to me. The greatest thing that we could do in 2019 is to tell every person we know about Jesus Christ. Scripture says it didn't go as well. I wish, I wish this story ended better, but the Bible says they begin making accusations. They, they say you're a blasphemer. You've blasphemed against Moses and the law. You've blasphemed against the temple. And they hired false witnesses and they brought him forward. And they said, here, accuse him. We'll pay you. And they did. You say, Pastor, do you think if we witness to everybody that everybody's a Philippian jailer that gets down on one knee and says, Sir, what must I do to be saved? No, sometimes they get mad. Sometimes they get upset. Sometimes they say you're harassing them. But it doesn't change the commission. It's still the same. Our job is to take the gospel to every person. Look, at, look down, if you would, a couple of verses. Look at verse number 14. He, he gets together all the Sanhedrin, and the Bible says they talked about Jesus of Nazareth, and the Bible says in verse 15, and they sat in the council. We're talking the 70 elders of Jerusalem. We're talking the Sanhedrin. We're talking to the establishment of the Jewish religion. And they looked steadfastly on him. And notice the Bible says they saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Isn't that amazing? 
Kind of reminds me back there in the Old Testament when Moses spent so much time on Mount Sinai with God. When he came down, his face was glowing. Maybe God says, all right, I'm so pleased with this witness. I'm so pleased that he's taken a stand for Christ. I'm so pleased that in the face of opposition, he still stands. He says, I'm going to let you look like an angel. And for a few moments, what he did with Moses on Mount Sinai, he does with Stephen. And when they look at him, they see the face of an angel. Wow. It's incredible. You say, Pastor, what kind of, what kind of, uh, of epithet, what kind of obituary would you like to have in 2019? I want people to know that I'm spirit-filled. I want people to know that I personally take serious the Great Commission. But listen to me. Now Stephen begins to preach. And when you begin to read in chapter number 7, Stephen's going to preach. Listen to this. This is a deacon He's going to preach the longest recorded sermon in the whole book of Acts. Wasn't Peter, it wasn't Paul, it was a deacon named Stephen. And they've made accusations against him. They said, you're a blasphemer and you blaspheme against Moses and you blaspheme against the law and you blaspheme against the temple. Systematically... <laughs> I hate to be this way. He dismantles them. Listen to me. With scripture. Let me add quickly that Stephen was a skilled student of the scriptures. It wasn't just the preachers. It wasn't just the apostles. It wasn't just the disciples that were studying the Bible. This man, Stephen, knew the book. And systematically, he goes all the way back through the scriptures. And he begins to pull scripture after scripture after scripture. And when he brings up their accusation that he's, he's somehow blaspheme against the temple, he begins to quote out of the book of Isaiah. He's quoting scripture, folks. He knew it well enough to quote it. He says, you remember what the prophet said? The prophet said, how can you make a building that God, the God of the universe, would be small enough to dwell in? God's way bigger than any kind of temple. Folks, let me be really honest with you. You want to make a difference in your life in 2019? You want to see your life change dramatically? Become a student of the scripture. Be spirit-filled. Take personally the Great Commission and then begin to load your mind with the meditations and the verses and the scriptures this year. You know, it amazes me how biblically ignorant so many Christians are. I'm not griping and I'm not complaining. I'm, I'm really not. But it amazes me at times when people will call me on the phone and they'll say, Pastor, I'm looking for a verse. Can you tell me where it's at? Seriously. We got one Bible answer man in the whole church. Oh, I recognize I study, and I recognize that you pay me to do that, and I don't begrudge you calling me on the phone. But folks, far more important than you learning how to use your cell phone is you learning how to use the Bible. Amen. Amen. Stephen was a man that saturated himself with God's Word. 
He was a student of the scriptures. You say, Pastor, how'd that work for him? They stoned him. Look down to chapter 7 and verse number 58. Let me show it to you. The Bible says, if you'll notice in verse 58, it says, and they cast him out of the city. Notice that. And they stoned him. Second century Jewish writing in the Mishnah describes the practice of stoning. It says, when the trial was finished, the man convicted is brought out to be stoned. With ten cubits from the place of stoning, they say to him, confess, for it is the custom of all about to be put to death to make confession, and everyone who confession has a share in the age to come. Four cubits from the place of stoning, the criminal is stripped. They drop from the place of the stoning about the twice the height of a man. They push him down into a stoning pit. And one of the witnesses pushes the criminal from behind and he falls face downward. He's then turned over on his back. If he doesn't die from the fall, the second witness then takes a stone, drops it on his heart. And if that doesn't cause death, if that's not sufficient, then the high priest straddles the man with a large stone and he smashes his face. They executed him. But notice what the scripture says in being full of the Holy Ghost, verse 20, 55. He looked steadfastly into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. By the way, I don't have time to throw you, uh, uh, these other verses, but Hebrews says that Jesus sits at the right hand of God. Sitting down is a sign that his work has been complete. Salvation is done. There's nothing else that needs to be done. Jesus Christ did it all. All to him I owe. Amen. But here the Bible says that Jesus is standing. He's standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped up their ears. You remember when you was a kid and your brother would tell you something you didn't want to hear and you, you put your fingers in your ears like this. La, 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 Come on, am I the only stupid one that ever did that? The Bible says they stopped up their ears and notice the Bible says they ran upon him. They rushed him. And with one accord, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. When I look at this passage, I see that Stephen was a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit. Stephen was a man, if you look carefully at this passage, he was a man that was filled with the scriptures. He studied God's word. But if you notice carefully, this passage also says that Stephen was a man who was personally concerned with the, with the Great Commission. But notice he was a man that was of great courage. The scripture says they stoned Stephen. He called upon God and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And he kneeled down and he cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You know, I don't know about you, but I've never been put in a situation quite as terrifying as that. I've had people slam their doors in my face. I've been cursed several times. I had a guy one time tried to spit on me. I had a lady one time let the dog out. I've never had anybody stone me. I've never had anybody rush me. By the way, the Bible says when they rushed him, they were gnashing their teeth. By the way, they still are because the Bible says those that die without Christ are in hell forever gnashing their teeth. <laughs> Michael Ramsden was a co-worker of Rabbi Zacharias and he shared this story, a true story, about a minister in Iran. As the minister was driving with his wife, they stopped in a small Iranian village to purchase some water. And before entering, the minister noticed a man holding a machine gun. He was leaning up against the wall outside the store. The minister's wife looked at the man's face with the gun, and she put a Bible in her husband's hand. She said, here, give that man a Bible. Her husband looked at the man. He had a menacing beard. He had a machine gun and replied, he said, I don't think so. She persisted. She said, I'm serious. Give it to him. Please give him the Bible. Trying to avoid the issue, the husband said, I'll pray about it. He went into the shop. He purchased his water. He climbed back into the car and he started to drive away. And the wife looked at him and said, I guess you didn't give him the Bible, did you? Looking straight ahead, he said, no, he prayed about it. It wasn't the right thing to do. She quietly said, you should have given him the Bible. She bowed her head and she started praying. And at that point, he turned to his wife and said, fine. If you want me to die, I will. So he turned the car around. He drove back to the store. He took the Bible he handed it to the man with the machine gun who was still standing by the wall. The man began to cry. He said, I don't live here. I had to walk three days in order to get to this village, but three days ago, an angel appeared to me, and he told me if I would walk to this village and wait, somebody would give me the book of life. Thank you for giving me this Bible. The minister became so courageous in his witness for Christ that eventually, along with his co-workers in that Iranian church, he was martyred for his death, for his faith. You see, the fact is, spirit-filled people like this minister and his wife, they aren't afraid of dying. They aren't afraid of what people might say. 
You see, the bottom line is their only hope is to please the Heavenly Father. Do you remember John Doan? He said, if you fear only God, you'll fear nothing else. But if you don't fear God, you'll fear everything else. Christians like Stephen, they live to please God. Who do you live to please? I read a story of a pianist that loved to play the piano. He worked hard at it. He was taught by a great master, a great teacher, and after years of study, he performed his first concert. The audience loved the skill that he showed at the keyboard. And at the end of his playing, they wildly, enthusiastically began to clap. They, they gave him a standing ovation, roaring applause. Cheers, weeping. They congratulated this young pianist. He walked back to the curtains. One of the young teachers there said, what a triumph for someone that's worked so hard to have such a great honor. And he said the pianist began to cry. He was dejected. He was crushed. He said, not everybody was cheering. The concert master replied, well, it's possible not everyone was cheering, but most of them were. Why do you make so much of it? And the young pianist said, there's one man out in the front row of the balcony that did not stand to cheer. And he's my teacher. And it'll never be a triumph without his approval. When Stephen died, Jesus stood up. And by the way, if he applauds you, you've done good. Amen. I wonder whose applaud we're working for. Stephen was filled with the Spirit and he saw heaven open and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. In every other place in the New Testament, Jesus is always seated. I think it's because he welcomed him home. I think it's because Jesus was being cheered by the Heavenly Father. Now I know some of you out there this morning, you may be a little cynical. And you say, well, Pastor... Why did Stephen die so young? I mean, he comes in to play in chapter 6, and by the end of chapter 7, he's dead. The Bible tells you, I think, the answer to that in chapter 8, verse 1. There was a guy named Saul that was consenting unto his death, and it was at that time at a great persecution of the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were scattered abroad through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. 
You see, that day it was Saul that held their clothes when they threw the stones. And it was that young Jewish rabbi who later becomes the great apostle Paul who goes around the world telling people about Christ. And by the way, if you get to Acts chapter 22, when Paul tells his testimony, he brings up this story and he names Stephen by name. He said, I was consenting unto the death of Stephen. I held their clothes. You see, I, I honestly believe that, that Saul got saved on the road to Damascus in eight, Acts chapter 8, but I believe that the seed was planted and the Holy Spirit began to work when he watched a young man named Stephen die and he looked upon his face and he saw the face of an angel and he looked upon his face as he looked towards heaven. He said, I see the heavens rescinding and I see Jesus Christ standing, waiting there at the right side of the Father. And I don't think Saul ever got over. Over it. Could it be that sometimes God's got a master plan that doesn't make sense to us? And yes, Stephen was young, but oh, would you trade Stephen's death for the conversion of the great apostle Paul? I don't know why certain things happen. But I do know this, God can bring amazing good out of things we could never understand. Amen. Stephen received this wonderful epithet because he was spirit-filled. Because he took the Great Commission personally. Because he was a skilled student of God's word. Boy, did he ever have courage. Let me ask you a question today. What about you? You know, I, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, but I'll guarantee you, if the Lord tarries his coming, we could not assemble this same crowd in a year from now. We couldn't. What will people say when you die. I love this passage. It says devout men, spiritual men, carried Stephen to his burial and they made great lament over him. No finer words could ever be said than those words right there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning.